0: In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Ghost. Please be seated. This is the fourth Sunday of Easter. Remember that we are in a week of weeks. We have seven weeks in which to contemplate and meditate upon the resurrection of our Lord. We also have 40 days within that to prepare for His ascension to the right hand of the Father. And the church finds it good that within that time for us to meditate on what it means to look for everlasting life, to look for the resurrection and the life of the world to come, that we consider our relationship with God and the way of a sheep and a shepherd. This is one of the primary ways in which we come to better understand who God is and who we are to relate to him. Of course, one of those primary ways, as is a father to adopted children, The Father adopts us and he brings us into his kingdom, into his household, and we learn how to become children of God. We are brides of Christ. We marry God. We come into uh, fidelity and chastity with him in that covenant of marriage. We also have this relationship of a shepherd and sheep. And sheep are called to uh, listen to the shepherd's voice and to gather around him in familiarity and in obedience. The picture of God as our shepherd is one that we see throughout the Old Testament. It's one that we see, especially in Ezekiel, and that uh, was one that we read as a church family as we gathered to uh, start Jesus the Good Shepherd. It's a dangerous one to pick if you're clergy or if you're someone in authority in the church, because it clearly says that if you are in authority and you're not acting as a good shepherd, the Lord will remove you. It's definitely a warning to those of us that are in ordained ministry. It should be a warning to all of us that believe that we are in the priesthood of all believers because we all have a responsibility to proclaim the gospel. We all have a responsibility to describe the ways of God to those that would come to us. We know that all around the world, people at this day are seeing visions of Christ. They would come to us and say, who is this man that I saw clothed in white? And it's our responsibility to tell them about Jesus, the Savior. People will come and say, what does God say about my suffering? You're a Jesus follower. What does he have to say about the suffering that I'm in? And we have to be ready with the comfort and love of God. If we don't do that and we aren't obedient, then we will be removed as shepherds just as Moses was removed from the people of God. How incredible because Moses is such a powerful figure. He's such a majestic figure of leadership. And here even Moses does not live up to that incredible high standard that God sets for his holiness. God's holiness is powerful and it is pure and we can't pass over it. Sometimes we'd like the holiness of God to be a little bit dimmer than it is, right? We'd like it to be an easy fire that we could hold in our hands or put in our pockets. But that's not the nature of fire. Fire is dangerous. Fire is powerful and it's good and it's wonderful, uh, but it demands our fear and our respect and our acknowledgement of its power and God's holiness is no different we have to acknowledge it and respect it and we have to be in fear of it and if we start to treat it like it's some familiar easy next door thing we will be burned and indeed this is what happens to the people of God in the wilderness as they go into the wilderness of sin here in uh, Numbers chapter 27 we're at the end of their wilderness wandering you remember that they leave Egypt, they go across the Red Sea, and there's that tiny little peninsula between Africa and Asia uh, that we call the the wilderness of sin. And there's this little piece in the middle of it where there was uh, rocks in this uh, place called Kadesh Barnea, where the people are suffering for want of water. And you remember that the people are thirsty, and they're tired, and they're saying, why did you take us away from Egypt where we had food and water, where we had shelter? Now we're suffering in this wilderness and we're parched and they begin to complain and they begin to fuss and moses becomes angry uh, moses becomes frustrated with the people of god and though god tells him to remind them of his holiness and he tells moses to speak to the rock moses instead yells at the people and hits the rock and because of his unwillingness to uphold the holiness of god the lord says you're not going into the holy land Indeed, none of that early generation went in. There's only two out of the perhaps half a million or million people that leave uh, Egypt that go in. Joshua and Caleb. And Joshua, whose name is Yeshua, whose name is Jesus, a type of for us, for Christ, takes the people and leads them out of the wilderness of sin, through the waters of baptism and the Jordan River and into the promised land, into this land where God would dwell with his people. And so he instructs Moses on not only the fact that he's not going to make it into the promised land, but his last job is to ordain his successor, to ordain uh, Joshua. And he tells us a little bit about the nature of this shepherding relationship. Because as Moses has been a shepherd to the people, Joshua will be a shepherd to the people as well. Again, he reminds him that he did not uphold him as holy. And he says that you're to appoint him over the congregation. Here in Numbers chapter 27, verse 16, he says, excuse me, in 17, he says, The whole congregation who shall go out before them and come in before them, who shall lead them out and bring them in. So this is an everyday relationship. This is a day-by-day relationship. This is a through-the-moments-of-life relationship. This shepherding relationship is not a one-time thing. It's not a one-time, you're the leader, and we're the people, and once that's established, we forget about it. It's an everyday relationship of shepherding. And indeed, that's the only way that we can really come to know our shepherd is in that daily living of coming in and going out. And so he's telling them that they're going to have to obey this shepherd, that they're not going to be able to rely on the the fence. They're not going to be able to rely on the leash. They're going to have to be obedient in relationship to their shepherd. He's going to put his spirit upon Joshua. Joshua, who already has the Holy Spirit. And of course, the point of his authority... The result of Joshua's authority in verse 20 is, You shall invest him with some of your authority that all the congregation of the people of Israel may obey. So the consequence, the result of Joshua having this authority, of Joshua having this shepherding relationship, is so that the people know how and are able to be obedient to God. This is the way in which we live with God. He gives authority and we follow with obedience. And again he says, uh, at his word they shall go out, and at his word they shall come in. And so this daily relationship of going out and coming in. And of course Joshua, for as wonderful a leader as he is, and for as powerful a leader he is, is not God himself, who is our true shepherd. He's not able to perfectly fulfill the shepherding relationship that we truly desire. And Jesus comes and establishes himself as our true shepherd. Indeed, in John chapter 10, this is the the focus of the whole chapter, is this uh, shepherd-sheep relationship. And we read a very interesting thing about the time and place that Jesus chooses To teach about that relationship. Here in John chapter 10, beginning at uh, verse 22, we read that it's the Feast of Dedication in Jerusalem at the time of winter. The Feast of Dedication is what we commonly call Hanukkah. And if uh, you're not reading your Apocrypha, your Deuterocanon, those scriptures between the Old and New Testament, you're going to miss entirely what the Feast of Dedication is. It's very important that we go and we read the Maccabees, because in the Maccabees we read that only 180 years before Christ, So this is a very new feast that they're keeping. The Greeks had destroyed and desecrated the temple of God. You remember that Alexander the Great comes from Macedon, and he sweeps through Syria and into Asia, and when he does so, he he takes over that land of Judea. And after Alexander dies, his empire breaks into three parts, the Ptolemies in Egypt and the Seleucids in Asia, and the Seleucids become more and more increasingly hostile to the Jews until finally a great general by the name of Antiochus Epiphanes goes into the temple of God and he walks into the holy of holies a gentile unclean and the holy of holies and he declares the Jews to be uh, atheists why because he goes in and there's no idol he says they don't worship anything they don't have any God there's none in the Holy of Holies. And so he desecrates the temple. And the Jews rise up under Judah Maccabee. They rise up with this military power and they kick the Greeks out and they uh, fight and move them out of Judea. They move them out of Jerusalem and they reestablish, they rededicate the temple. And you'll remember that there is this um, this miracle that happens where they only had enough oil for the lamps in the Holy of Holies for one day, but that oil lasts eight days. And this is the miracle that they're remembering in the feast of dedication why is that important it's important because it was still important for the jews in the day of jesus because the temple still wasn't clean herod who is the king has a palace in jerusalem right next to the temple of god and he's an edomite he's not a jew the Romans, Pilate himself, have barracks where they're keeping soldiers right next to the temple of God and the soldiers walk right by the walls of the temple and spit on it and desecrate it. They're struggling to find their ritual purity, they're struggling to be able to 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 purify this place where God has promised to dwell with his people it's been desecrated and it's been made unholy and they know that they have not kept the law of god they've not kept it perfectly by maintaining their separation from the gentiles and they know that this has to be made clean and so there are continual uprisings through the time of jesus finally in 70 a.d you remember that they rise up and they're defeated in jerusalem and the temple is destroyed and finally in 135 a.d they have another uprising and the romans kick out every Jew from Judea. None are allowed to live there because they have been struggling with this ritual purity. It's a purity hopefully all of us can relate to as well. Don't we suffer when we go into the world and we say, how am I going to keep my my purity of life? How am I going to keep uh, my purity of mind?" Because when I go into the grocery store, I go into a convenience store, I go into work, I hear uh, language that profanes God and I see ideas that, that desecrate the holiness of God and my co-workers um, argue against, uh, you know, uh, following God and everywhere I go it is a struggle to maintain my way of life and to to remind myself that i am a sheep of god and so how do we maintain this life of holiness while we're living in this profane world and jesus answers that question for us he brings us the answer and his answer is that he is the shepherd of the sheep And so we don't have to go in ritual washing. We don't have to go to the temple of Jerusalem. But when we follow these three basic principles of our life with Christ, who is here with us, we are able to lead lives that are dedicated, dedicated to Him. we become dedicated as temples of God. And so what does Jesus say? In chapter 10, verse 27, He identifies or clarifies this sheep-shepherd relationship. He says, My sheep, hear my voice. And I know them, and they follow me. Nice and easy. They hear my voice, I know them, and they follow me. So the first thing is we have to hear the voice of God. To hear the voice of God, we have to get used to that voice. We have to practice listening. that voice because there's a lot of voices that are trying to get through to us we have to have quiet time we have to turn off our noisemakers we have to turn off our machines we have to find a quiet place where we can be in the scripture and we can uh, meditate on the word of God and we can wait for him to speak to us if we wait God is faithful if we wait God is faithful he will speak and the more we hear his voice the more we will discern it and recognize it So the first thing is that we hear His voice. The second thing is that He knows us. Isn't that interesting? You might think that it should be that we would know Him. Because people make a big deal about that, right? Do you know Jesus? Do you know the Lord? But that's really not a big deal, it turns out. In fact, it turns out that doesn't really mean anything at all. Knowing who God is and knowing who Jesus is, is what the demons do. You remember the demons all the way through the gospel who declared that Jesus is Lord? Satan knows who Jesus is. He knows what he accomplished on the cross. What good does it do him? Nothing. We make a big deal about people knowing or not knowing God, but it turns out that that is what brings us up to the level of a demon. What counts is, does God know us? Do we let him into our hearts? Do we allow his Holy Spirit in? Do we allow Him to search our hearts and minds? Do we just let Him under the porch of our lives? Or do we bring Him into our living rooms? Do we bring Him into the dinner table? Do we allow Him into our bedrooms and our bathrooms? Do we allow Him into the intent of our minds? Do we allow Him into those day-to-day decisions? When we allow the Holy Spirit into our hearts to transform us and to implant his faith, his hope, and his love, then we have the power to be obedient. Then we have the ability to be obedient, because God's not looking for robots. He's not just going to tell us what to do and make us do it. He's not looking for puppets. He's looking for children and wives. He's looking for a family relationship of dwelling. He's not a tyrant. He would have us hope for the things of God. He would have us love the ways of God. He would have us love his sheep as he does. And only through the transformation of the Holy Spirit with him knowing us will we have the courage and the strength that we need finally to follow him. To follow him. And then what's even more amazing about this in this Temple relationship, this dwelling of heaven and earth together, this dwelling, this tabernacling of God with his people, is that he would have an even more intimate relationship with us, he says that I will keep them in the palm of my hand. We would be so intimate with God that he would keep us in the palm of his hand. And Jesus says, You will not only be in my hand, but in the hand of the Father, because we are one. And he says you will have eternal life and you will never perish and no one can take you away. Because we are in the hand of he who is eternal. So what does that mean for us? We just sit back and relax now? Okay, we'll follow him. Maybe we'll do a little bit here and there, but a life that's easy. That's not what we read in the Acts of the Apostles. That's not how the life of a Christian is described here in Acts chapter uh, 13 when we are obedient we follow the Lord he sends us into places where we will need all of that courage and all of that hope Here in Acts 13, uh, we read, uh, on the Sabbath day, they went into the synagogue. The they that's being referred to here is Paul and Barnabas, and they have made their way on a missionary journey all the way into Asia Minor, what we call Turkey today. There's an Antioch, it's in Syria, in Asia, but they're in Antioch, Pisidia. They're all the way into Asia Minor in Turkey, a long ways from Jerusalem. And uh, as you remember, the Jews are in Diaspora, right? All the way since the time of Babylon, The Jews have never made their way fully back. So they're in diaspora all over the known world, and they have synagogues in each of these cities. And you'll remember that the apostles' practice is to go into these synagogues to preach the good news to the Jews because this is uh, who the Lord has chosen to be his representatives. There's no way to preach the gospel without including the story of the Jews and without including the way that Jesus fulfills the promises made in the law and the prophets. And so this is what Paul and Barnabas are doing. They're going into the synagogue. They're saying, here's the promises of God. Here he promised to be the shepherd of the sheep. And here he has fulfilled it in the person of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And so you have a new way of living now in holiness and dwelling with him. And you'll notice that what he does is he addresses the Jews. He addresses, he calls them the sons of Abraham. And he says, those of you that fear God. This is very interesting the sons of Abraham and those who fear God because in every synagogue around the world there will be those that they call Jew uh, excuse me God fears God fears these are the people that fear God but they have not been able to make that transition to become proselytes which would require them to be circumcised and to keep ritual clean households Now sometimes we minimize this because maybe we've got family members that are vegetarians or uh, we have some other eating practice and we eat different foods than our neighbors. This is not what the Jews were practicing. They would not go into the home of a Gentile and they certainly wouldn't sit at table. So what do you do if you're a Roman soldier and you've heard the law and the prophets proclaimed, you realize this is the one true God and you have to, to be circumcised and keep a ritual pure table to eat. You couldn't be a soldier anymore. You'd lose your job. You'd lose the way of supporting your family. And maybe there were lots of people depending upon you. They couldn't go and eat in the barracks. They couldn't go back to Rome and eat at a temple. They could never eat with their family again. You're giving up all Thanksgiving dinners, all ritual dinners, all of those ways in which they were family. They would be completely cut off from their people if they did that. And so this good news where uh, the Lord is not asking them to be circumcised and to cut themselves off completely in that ritual clean way that He would um, enter into relationship with them and that the Holy Spirit would dwell with them is a radical gospel message that He is delivering. A radical good news. And he identifies this good news by saying that what we have to do, again, is to identify the holiness of God. He goes back to the wilderness. He goes back to the, to the Psalms. He goes back to that, uh, that truth that we have to maintain and recognize the holiness of God. He goes back to the Psalms here and quotes from them. If you uh, look at uh, Acts chapter 13, verse 34, he says, I will give you the holy and sure blessings of David. This, of course, is our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. He is the holy and sure blessing of David. Again, he says in verse 35, you will not let your Holy One see corruption. Jesus is the Holy One who would not corrupt in the tomb, but would rise to everlasting life. And he says that through Jesus, we get the forgiveness of sins and that we are freed in his name. We're free in his name. Now, freedom is an idea that's misunderstood in our culture. Freedom in our culture is some kind of anarchy, right? Freedom means doing whatever I want. Freedom means following my own gut, my own bones, right? Do what you want, when you want. That's anarchy. Real freedom is found in obedience to God. If you saw the Kentucky Derby yesterday, I think you saw some freedom. See, a horse at the starting line could see the finish line from where he stood. The horse and the jockey could have said, let's just jump over this rail and go straight through the grass to the finish line right? But would he have run the race? Disqualified. We've seen in years past where horse and rider were disqualified because of the way they cut in front of other riders or they kept to the rail, right? To run a race the right way, it's not just that we have to to, to follow the rules. It's not just about saying, follow the rules, follow the rules, but there has to be a desire for the ways of God in accordance with his ways, And when we have matched with the desires for the race that is set before us, a desire for the ways of God, a desire for His holiness, for His kingdom, for dwelling with Him, matched with understanding that to use fire, we have to use it in the right way. To come before God's holiness, we have to use it in the right way. To follow the race that's set before us, we have to race in the right way. Then we are following the freedom of God. And when you see that race run, and true freedom it's beautiful the horse and rider are one and they are fast because they're following the rules but they're not just following the rules they're desiring the finish line which is the resurrection of our Lord and to be in His hand that we may be always in the hand of the Father that we may hear his voice and know him as he would know us this day and for all eternity.